Hello everyone, and welcome to the inaugural History Matters podcast. The aim of these podcasts is to go a little bit in depth on various, mostly modern, historical issues, with a particular emphasis on military and diplomatic history. Sometimes it might be straight narrative history, sometimes historiography, and sometimes looking at conflicting sides in a historical debate. And sometimes it may even be all three, who knows. Anyway, hopefully that sounds of some interest to you. We will be kicking things off today with a really thorny issue, the Schlieffen Plan, and the relatively recent controversy surrounding it. I remember going over this in a postgraduate seminar many years ago, and it kind of blew my mind. Okay, so starting off. Just in case you've been hiding under a rock, let's first have a bit of basic narrative history about what the Schlieffen Plan was, or was believed to be. Firstly, who was Schlieffen? Alfred Graf von Schlieffen was born in 1833 and died in January of 1913, 90 months before the outbreak of the First World War. He served for 53 years, first in the Prussian army, and later the Imperial German army. More importantly for our purposes was his time spent as Chief of the General Staff from 1891 until his forced retirement in 1906 due to being kicked by a horse, somewhat unfortunately. Whilst in this position, he was responsible for drawing up potential operational plans for use by the army, and in 1905 and 1906 he devised a new plan. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, due to Schlieffen's increasingly advanced age and equine accident, the plan was never implemented by Schlieffen, and it was supposedly left his successor, Helmut von Moltke, or Moltke the Younger. A bit of strategic context is also important here. The Franco-Russian alliance signed in 1892 meant that Germany would potentially be faced with broadly superior enemy combined forces in the event of a general European war. In confronting this poor strategic situation, German military planners, such as Schlieffen, increasingly tended towards the idea of knocking out one of the two main opponents quickly in a kind of operational coup de main. As Imperial Russia would be by far slower of the two to mobilise its army and possess a huge landmass to retreat into, the decision to strike early and hard against France was the obvious choice to take for Schlieffen. The intent of the Schlieffen plan was to annihilate the French army in one quick, enormous battle what in German would be called a Vernichtungsschlacht. Incidentally, you really must forgive my uh, German pronunciation. I speak a bit of Dutch, but not really any German. And although Dutch often has broadly similar syntax and grammatical structure to German, it really is uh, often pronounced quite differently, unfortunately. The concept was to deploy seven-eighths of the Imperial German army between Metz and Aachen on the right wing of the German front, leaving only one-eighth of the army to guard the left flank in Lorraine against a French attack. No one, in theory, would be sent to protect East Prussia against the Russians. The right wing would sweep through Belgium and northern France, if necessary swinging to the west of Paris, continually turning the French left flank, eventually pushing the French army into Switzerland. Okay, so that was the plan in brief, but it is important to point out that when using the term the Schlieffen Plan, this was not a term that military contemporaries engaging in the initial operations of the First World War would have actually recognised. Kaiser Wilhelm II would not have strode up to Moltke the Younger, who was Schlieffen's successor as head of a general staff, and said to him, please execute the Schlieffen plan. What one sees instead is that beginning after the war, around 1920, semi-official histories written by retired First World War German army officers, such as Lieutenant Colonel Wolfgang Forster, General Hermann von Kuhl, and German Wilhelm Hroner, 
as well as the first volume of the official history of the war produced by the Reichsarchiv in 1925, start to create the idea that Schlieffen's 1905 plan represented the culmination of Schlieffen's military thought, and provided Germany with a nearly infallible war plan. All that Schlieffen's successor, Helmut von Moltke the Younger, had needed to do was to execute that Schlieffen plan, and Germany would have been practically assured victory in August of 1914. They contended that Moltke did not understand the concept of a Schlieffen plan, and modified it, watered it down, by strengthening the forces on the left wing, those forces in Alsace-Lorraine, at the expense of the main attack on the right, as well as prematurely diverting forces to the Eastern Front. It was for these reasons the post-war German military authors contended that the German army had failed to destroy the French army in the initial campaign in the West in 1914. This assertion, in conjunction with the uh, famous stab-in-the-back theory, which absolved the German army for responsibility for later losing the war, hardened into historical dogma. After the war, the Reichsarchive in Potsdam collected documentary evidence by approaching key military and political figures and assembling information based on their diaries and memoirs. The result of this work, the Weltkriegswerk, in 14 volumes plus two additional volumes of documents, was published from 1924 onwards. The source material contained within its files is not without its problems, particularly because their work was shaped by a desire to write an apologetic history. The contributors were resentful of the Entente's victory and of the new democratic system of the Weimar Republic. The Reichsarchive took over research into military history from the former general staff, and in 1924 the department was renamed History Department, dropping the war history so as no longer to remind outsiders of the general staff connection. With its declared aim of maintaining the influence of Schlieffen's strategic thinking on future war planning, the Reichsarchive became one of the main creators of the Schlieffen myth. In terms of other early writing on German war planning, the Reichsarchive, which was the custodian of pre-war German plans, treated military planning documents as classified materials. Access to them was essentially restricted to reliable retired officers, such as the aforementioned Forster, Kuhl and Kroner, during the interwar years. Unfortunately, the Reichsarchive, and with it all of Schlieffen's and Moltke's war plans, was destroyed by British incendiary bombs on the night of April of 1945. It is important to note that the lacuna created by the destruction of source material in the Second World War would have serious consequences that would be played out in the later debate over the existence of the Schlieffen plan. Later historians will be forced, at least initially, to rely on second-hand accounts and analysis of people like Rona, more than usually would be desirable. Fortunately, however, the original copies of Schlieffen's Denkschrift, or Memorandum, had been among the few documents to be transferred out of the Reichsarchive beforehand, and therefore survived. However, the Denkschrift was not made public until 1956, in a now famous work by Gerhard Ritter, The Schlieffenpan, Kritique eines Mythos, which was subsequently published two years later in English as The Schlieffenpan, Kritique of a Myth. Professor Ritter was a highly conservative history professor at the University of Freiburg, but his work in the post-war era was to prove highly influential. Indeed, Ritter's account quickly became the standard work used by historians on the Schlieffen plan, helping to form the easy and, according to some later historians, supposedly inaccurate assumptions made when discussing German military planning. As an example of this, one could uh, point to LCF Turner's well-thumbed 1979 essay, The Significance of the Schlieffen Plan, in Paul Kennedy's The War Plans of the Great Powers. Turner largely sought to just add new material to Ritter's account, and quoted extensively from Ritter's The Schlieffen Plan throughout. However, the most outspoken critic of Moltke, and a dedicated believer in Schlieffen's abilities, was the aforementioned Wilhelm Kroner, 
who had served on the general staff under both Schlieffen and Moltke. Kruner, more than anyone else, is to be regarded as the creator of the Schlieffen myth. His papers in the military archive in Freiburg and his numerous publications created an idealised image of Schlieffen and bemoaned any changes to Schlieffen's plan. Kruner and Ritter will be some of the more important figures in the debate concerning the Schlieffen plan, as future historians would draw contrasting conclusions from analysis of their work. And now for a brief musical interlude. National Anthem of Imperial Germany. Hail to thee in the victor's crown. Formerly the Royal Anthem of Prussia, and with a, uh, a very similar melody to Britain's National Anthem, God Save the Queen, or King. Anyway, a fitting introduction, I hope, for the next stage of a podcast, the debate proper over the Schlieffen Plan. So, now that we have discussed some of the basic historiography and historiographical issues regarding the Schlieffen Plan, we can move forward. The debate began in July of 1999 with a man named Terence Zuber. Zuber was a retired US Army major who served in Germany and who completed his doctorate at the University of Würzburg. And in that July, he published a seminal article in the journal War in History, in which he claimed the Schlieffen Plan did not exist. This was followed up three years later, in 2002, with the release of Inventing the Schlieffen Plan, published by Oxford University Press which extended the scope and depth of the original article. At a stroke, one of the most well-established and famous military historical events was called into question, and threatened to overturn in an interpretation of German militarism that had been established by Gerhard Ritter in 1956. Many of the significant political and military issues thrown up by the Schlieffenplan would have to be reconsidered if Zuber's thesis holds firm. The argument put forward by Zuber is as follows. And here I will uh, simply quote directly from the introduction to his work. This book intends to prove that there never was a Schlieffen plan. It will present recently discovered documents from the Reich's archive, as well as previously neglected exercises from other German archives, to show that, far from being the final expression of 15 years of Schlieffen's military thought, the so-called Schlieffen plan bore no resemblance to Schlieffen's war planning at all. End of quotation. Okay. So Zuber believes that the Denkschrift, study or memorandum, written by Schlieffen in 1906, played a distorted role in developing historical understanding of German military planning, largely thanks to the documents misused by Ritter in his 1956 Der Schlieffenplan. Both Zuber's article and book were based on Dr. Wilhelm Diekmann's unfinished manuscript Der Schlieffenplan and studies of General Stabreisen, General Staffreis, from the Bundesarchive Military Archive in Freiburg. Major Dr. Willem Diekmann was an economic historian working in the Reichsarchive on the official history of the war. His work, the Schlieffenplan, was based on summaries of various operational studies, memoranda and staff rides, material destroyed when the RAF bombed the Reichsarchive in April 1945. Given the serious gaps in the historical record, Zuma believed that the Diekmann manuscript, which was suppressed by the anti-Moltke Kaval, remains our best account of the evolution of Schlieffen's strategic thinking before his retirement. This document, along with around 40 tons of other military documents, had been returned to Potsdam in 1988 from Podolsk, south of Moscow, after their seizure by the Red Army in 1945. 
With the collapse of the GDR a year later, these documents were then relocated to Freiburg. Zuber was also able to draw upon the Bavarian military archives, as these were not destroyed by bombing in 1945. Based on these readings and his own analysis, Zuber asserts that Schlieffen never seriously contemplated a massive outflanking manoeuvre to the north. Zuber instead believes that Schlieffen was constantly a proponent of a limited, largely defensive frontier battle in the west. He concludes in his work that Schlieffen's Memorandum of 1906 was not a summary of Schlieffen's strategic thinking, much less a fully realised operational plan. Rather, it was written, in Zuber's view, to support a substantial increase in the size of a German army, by establishing the rationale that Germany's only hope for victory against the materially superior encircling enemy was for a massive battle of annihilation in the West, the success of which would inevitably depend on a substantial increase in troop strength. In that sense, the Schlieffen plan is merely the German general staff attempting to get a funding increase from the Reichstag. Based on this reading, Zuber is therefore very critical for historians who have taken the existence of the Schlieffen plan as prima facie evidence of the Second Reich's dysfunctional militarism, aggressive intentions and responsibility for the start of the First World War. Okay, so just to summarise Zuber's argument for the sake of clarity, the Schlieffen plan was invented in the 1920s by former German officers to turn Moltke the Younger into a convenient scapegoat for their failure to provide decisive victory in 1914. It was then seized upon by German scholars, military leaders and politicians after the First World War to provide a convenient means to pillory Moltke the Younger and explain away German failure to succeed in the opening stages of 1914. After the Second World War, Ritter added to this confusion by publishing the actual Denkschrift study, written by Schlieffen in 1906 in his work, The Schlieffen Plan, which then went on to play a hugely distorting role in developing historical understanding of German military planning. Ritter's account quickly became a standard work consulted by political and social historians, helping to form the easy assumptions made when discussing German military planning and aggressive militaristic tendencies. Zuber maintains that this Denkschrift was an aberration and did not reflect the usual strategies advanced by Schlieffen since his appointment in 1891. Document outlined a plan for a war against France alone and advocated a battle of annihilation by sending an immensely strong German right wing, seven-eighths of a German army, through Belgium and keeping the small remainder to guard Lorraine. The German sweep through Belgium and northern France would continually turn the French flank, if necessary, by swinging to the west of Paris. Zuber believed that a closer analysis of certain secondary documents demonstrates Schlieffen planning mostly for a two-front defensive strategy, one that utilised interior rail lines as a force multiplier to counter-attack inside the German border. The Schlieffen plan Denkschrift also used 24 reserve and ersatz divisions, and could not, according to Zuber, have been the basis of a genuine viable military plan. The purpose of the Denkschrift, therefore, was simply to pressure the German political leadership for the introduction of universal conscription and greater funding allocation, nothing more. Demonstrating a strategy that may become viable if, and only if, the army was given the resources it desired. Zuber believes this lack of significance was reflected in the fact that the vital document itself was supposedly kept in the possession of Schlieffen's daughters, along with the family photos. Therefore, when Germany went to war, Molke could not have been attempting to implement a Schlieffen plan, and was instead fighting a defensive battle based on interior lines. It was only after the initial German successes in August of 1914, during what has become known as the Battle of Frontiers, that Moltke was persuaded to adopt a more offensive posture, 
and his subsequent partially improvised offensive operations then later became known as the Schlieffen Plan. The significance of this new interpretation by Zuber of the Schlieffen Plan, if sustained, can hardly be understated. At a stroke, it could well have forced substantial historiographical revision. Scholarship discussing the aggressive nature of Wilhelmine Germany and the origins of the First World War would, at least in part, have to have been rewritten. Yet this was not to be the case, however, as there very swiftly developed a lengthy debate in the aforementioned historical journal War in History, as well as elsewhere, that reasserted the validity of the old Schlieffen Plan interpretation. The first scholar to begin the counter-offensive against Terence Zuber was, somewhat confusingly, another guy called Terence, Terence Holmes. Holmes attempted to demonstrate three things. Firstly, the earnest and coherent nature of a Denkschrift as an operational plan. Secondly, the document as a natural extension of Schlieffen's military thought. And finally, Moltke's eventual acceptance of the broad contours of a plan for use in August of 1914. Later on in the opening phase of the debate, Holmes was joined in his defence of the Schlieffen plan by Robert Foley in 2003, who, like Holmes, extended the idea of continuity in Schlieffen's military thought by examining German perception of French deployment plans and the construction of new German border fortifications. But first, let's look at the arguments of Terence Holmes, beginning with his rebuttals from 2001 and 2002. Holmes attempts to demonstrate, using Wolfgang Forster's 1941 work on the German general staff, that the 1905 Denkschrift was based not on the deployment plans of 1905-1906, but rather on those of 1906-1907, which comprised 26 active corps, 12 reserve corps, and 3 reserve divisions. This is significant because such a field force very nearly totals the 80 divisions Schlieffen required to implement his attack plan in the West. This is certainly a far cry from Zuber's interpretation of a Denkschrift as an optimistic recruitment tool. Manpower could have been found, Holmes argued, from the reservists, the Landwehr and the Landsturm, who immediately upon mobilisation could have been used to quickly flesh out the Ersatz battalions found in every German infantry regiment during this period, an idea that went back to 1891. This helps to demonstrate that Schlieffen's Denkschrift was far more than a plea for units, but a carefully thought-out operational plan something that was, in the words of Holmes, a crash programme to be implemented by the Chief of Staff as soon as the war began. Zuber, however, believes material for men like Forster should be discarded as they were Schlieffen Plan conspirators who constructed outright lies in their attempt to make the plan feasible. To placate Zuber, Holmes returns to the Reichsarchive's official history of the war to supplement his reliance on Forster. It contains a detailed breakdown of a German army's order of battle for 1910 which lists 79 divisions, made up of 970 battalions, a figure that correlates almost exactly with the 971 battalions mentioned by Schlieffen, thus proving, according to Holmes, that the plan was based on genuine figures of army strength down to a very detailed level. Zuber, however, took issue with this improvised German army strength, even if the formations could be created, and try to show such a force would still be too weak to envelop and invest Paris in an article subtly entitled Terence Holmes Reinvents the Schlieffen Plan. Holmes fired right back, simply stating that Zuber's metacritic, based on hindsight, is kind of beside the point. Schlieffen himself at the time clearly felt that his operation could work, and that the improvised ersatz corps would be just strong enough to see the operation through, with the weaker formations being used for the sieges of fortifications like Liège, so as to free better formations for more active flanking operations. 
Holmes and Zuber also offered differing interpretations of the General Stabsreisen, General Staff Rides or Tours, and the Kriegsspiel, War Games, that were conducted and overseen by Schlieffen himself, especially Schlieffen's 2-1904 General Stabsreisen vest. The reason these General Stabsreisen are so significant to source to Zuber and Holmes is because Zuber's Diekmann manuscript ends suddenly in 1904, and these studies are Zuber's attempt to extract what Schlieffen may have been thinking at the time. So this part of the debate is essentially addressing the issue of continuity or aberration in Schlieffen's military thought, with Zuber leaning heavily into the idea of them being an aberration and Holmes the opposite. Holmes relies on General Lieutenant von Zollner's account of a General Stabreisen to make his case. Zuber believes he is unreliable, having already been deceived by the Schlieffen conspiracy. Ultimately, both protagonists see Schlieffen's General Stabreisen as demonstrating their own beliefs. Holmes saw these exercises as revealing Schlieffen's growing preoccupation with the idea of a strong right-wing offensive in the West, and part of an intermediate stage before the final plan took form in the following years. Zuber instead sees them as displaying the proper conduct of a defence on interior lines, stating that right-wing advances into northern France, mentioned only briefly, with the exercises themselves fought entirely in the Ardennes and Lorraine. Holmes disparages this by introducing an account of the General Stabs Riser Vest of summer 1905 written in the early 1930s. This explodes Zuber's theory that German forces never entered France, with the exercise clearly showing strong German forces marching through Belgium and into northern France. Moving on from the war games issues, the debate was also conducted concerning the feasibility of concentrating all available German field forces in the West, and also linked to this a debate about the perceived combat effectiveness of the Russian army in 1905, due to the impact of the Russo-Japanese war and a state of internal upheaval there. For Zuba, Imperial Russian forces were still clearly a serious operational menace in 1905. Therefore, any genuinely serious military plan would have to deploy forces in East Prussia, and an overwhelming blow could not therefore be simultaneously struck against France. Holmes counters this by utilising some of Schlieffen's personal correspondence to demonstrate that Schlieffen was convinced that Russia was completely unfit to fight, and therefore a scenario in which France could not count on effective Russian support was highly likely in 1905 when the plan was drafted. Zuber turns back to Diekmann's unpublished manuscript to demonstrate that after 1899 and 1900, two alternative operational plans were issued each year. Aufmarsch 1, which called for a major offensive in the west, and Aufmarsch 2, which called for a similar offensive in the east and a western holding action. Yet Diekmann's manuscript breaks off in 1903-1904, before the Russo-Japanese War. To fill this gap, Zuber turns to Ludendorff to substantiate the arrant nature of a 1905 Denkschrift, who seemingly confirms that, in the real war plan for 1905-1906, Ludendorff said Schlieffen deployed 10 infantry divisions in East Prussia and 62 in the West. Yet Holmes demonstrates that Ludendorff was actually putting forward Aufmarsch 2, while the Western alternative, Aufmarsch 1, was to deploy all 72 divisions against France bringing actual operational planning at the time fully in line with the Schlieffen plan. It is at this point that Robert Foley, from King's College London, also intervenes in the debate against Zuber. He sidesteps the debate raging between Zuber and Holmes over issues like operational plausibility, staff rides, war games and force concentration, and instead focuses in on a Schlieffen memorandum of October 1898, 
which offered what in Foley's view was a striking resemblance to the 1905 Denkschrift. The 1898 memorandum found most German forces deployed in the West, powerful right wing moving through Belgium and Luxembourg, and an emphasis on decisive, rapid victory over France. The key differences are a lower force concentration on the right wing, 12 army corps and 8 reserve divisions, and a much shallower envelopment than the right wing that extended all the way to Dunkirk six years later in the 1905 plan. This 1989 document seems to show an early stage of Schlieffen's military planning, albeit one altered to fit a somewhat different strategic environment. Also significant for Foley in establishing the continuity of Schlieffen's military planning was the adoption of the famous French Plan 14 in March of 1903. The German general staff believed French forces were to be redeployed much further north than was actually the case, forcing Schlieffen into a re-evaluation of a German right, which eventually extended all the way to the coast in the 1905 memorandum. Another strategic effect outlined by Foley was the expected completion of fortifications surrounding the then-German city of Metz in 1905, which allowed it to serve as a pivot and flank protection for the forces invading France, and enabled Schlieffen to write his 1905 Denkschrift. Zuber responded by stating that the completion of the Metz fortifications had nothing to do with the Schlieffen plan, as Schlieffen often based operational planning on uncompleted fortress work. Foley also turns his fire onto Zuber's use of sources, especially his use of the Dieckmann manuscript, who has no information on the crucial period of the writing of the actual Schlieffen Denkschrift. Zuber uses Dieckmann to debunk the Schlieffen plan by stating, and I quote, In fact, even though Dieckmann himself badly wanted to believe in the Schlieffen plan, his manuscript demonstrates that from 1889 to 1904, there was not a trace of the Schlieffen plan to be seen in any of Schlieffen's strategic thought, end quotation. Yet this is a particularly peculiar interpretation of Dieckmann's De Schlieffen plan. Dieckmann himself structured his work so as to make 1905 the culmination of Schlieffen's war planning. So why does Zuber presume to know better than a man who was intimately familiar with the actual sources? Foley then turns to Zuber's use of staff rides as sources to cover the premature termination of the Dieckmann manuscript. Foley describes this problem by arguing that one of the key assumptions upon which Zuber's argument is based is that staff rides provide a direct window into war planning. However, with the exception of one year, 1905, there is absolutely no evidence that Schlieffen or Moltke used their staff rides to test their war plans directly. Indeed, most evidence suggests that these were primarily designed to provide training for staff officers and as a means of assessing staff officers for further promotion. Foley also points out that Dieckmann was forced to write from a highly limited number of sources. Many of the documents that would have allowed a fuller understanding would have been destroyed by military security procedures. Such destruction would, according to Foley, account for Zuber's problem of the possession of a 1905 Denkschrift being in the hands of Schlieffen's daughter in August of 1914. The Reich's archive was forced to scour Germany for documents wherever they could be found to replace those destroyed, including in the hands of Schlieffen's daughter, Elizabeth. Later on in 2008, a German historian, Gerhard Kroos, demonstrated using an analysis of a work of Forster that the actual original Denkschrift was kept in the Reich's archive until its destruction in 1945. Foley also takes aim at Zuber's particularly narrow focus on operational aspects, 
believing him to rarely take into account the bigger international and diplomatic picture and the fundamental shift in the strategic situation that took place in 1905 as a result of Russian failure in its war with Japan. Zuba also neglects to mention the secret mutual defence accord signed in July of 1905 by Kaiser Wilhelm and Tsar Nicholas at Bjorko in the Grand Duchy of Finland, which created a window of opportunity in which Schlieffen could write his plan for a war against France alone. Zuba also does not discuss the first Moroccan crisis of 1905-6, where preventative war against France seemed highly plausible to many in Berlin, and strongly advocated by Schlieffen, who famously took to calling the German Ministry of War the Ministry of Peace in abject frustration. So, at this point in the story, there is somewhat of a stalemate between Zuba and his many opponents, with his thesis seriously damaged, but not yet fatally wounded. But in the autumn of 2004, the modern German army historical section held a conference on the Schlieffen Plan, and in advance of the conference, the German military archives made available a document containing the surviving deployment directives of Schlieffen and Moltke the Younger, an invaluable source for studying German war planning. This document had been stored in the Potsdam Army Archive, but was not accessible to researchers between 1996 and 2002, when Zuber had been writing Inventing the Schlieffen Plan. Based on this document, and the deliberations of the 2004 conference, a new work was produced by a trio of German historians in 2006, which unfortunately has not yet been translated into English, at least as far as I am aware. It is certainly now hard to disagree with historian Annika Mombauer when she states that there is simply no need for a radical rethink of everything we ever thought we knew about German war planning. Foley likewise states that Schlieffen deserves to be remembered as the father of Germany's war plan, with all its strengths and weaknesses, in 1914. The Schlieffen plan can perhaps now best be seen more as a basic operational strategic doctrine that Moltke modified to the changing strategic situation he faced after 1905. Okay, so perhaps a few remarks bringing this look at the supposed Great Schlieffen debate to a close. I think it's a really great example of a fascinating historical debate. It just goes to show how educated, well-intentioned individuals can fundamentally disagree on something so basic through differing approaches to historical source material. I do find the whole thing as interesting today as I did a decade ago when first reading through these debates in various journals. It also serves as an excellent example of how, on the surface, something involving a rather dry discussion of operational minutiae can quickly morph into an argument about the nature of Imperial German militarism as a whole. If Zuber had been able to win his argument, then, as he correctly pointed out, the case against German militarism without the Schlieffen plan looks very different. For Zuber, with Moltke implementing a two-front defence strategy in 1914, it was the French and Russians who were the aggressors, with the first major battles of the war at Stelloponen and Tannenberg being fought in German territory. It is also a good example of the relevancy of military history to wider historical debates. Okay, that is pretty much it for this week. If you have any questions about this particular episode, or just want to get in touch, then my email is historytompod at gmail.com. I'm also more than happy to provide any further reading suggestions for the issue covered in this podcast, although for some of the stuff you would probably need some sort of access to an academic library. But if you're really stuck, I can send you some documents directly. Next time, I'll be looking at something a little bit different. The Neutral Powers in the Second World War. 
I'll probably start out with an overview of the general concept of neutrality and how it changed in the interwar years, and then perhaps we'll dip our feet into some specific case studies of uh, specific neutral nations in the conflict. It should be good. So thank you very much for listening in. I really, really do appreciate it, and I hope to see you around next time. Yeah.